Good evening, very warm welcome. My name is uh, Dan Steele, if you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Morgan Road. Um, a couple of times a year we have uh, a day for us, or two days for us as a church, thinking about the fact that God is not just God of um, East Oxford, or Morgan Road, or Oxford, or even the UK, but actually he's the God of the whole world. And so um, it's great for us as a church to, as well as the month by month praying, we give them feedback from mission partners and agencies to actually have an opportunity to press pause um, and to glimpse or have a glimpse of what God is doing in different areas around the world. Um, So we're thrilled today um, to have Jim Memory, who will introduce himself shortly, but um, Jim did a great job this morning um, in Esther, chapter 4, it will be on the website if people want to listen in, um, uh, thinking about what it might mean for for such a time as this um, and to trust God in the midst of all that's going on around the world, particularly in Europe. Um, I'm going to pray for our time together, and then I'm going to kind of pitch a question up for him, and sit down, and then he will um, tell us a bit about himself and a bit more of his background, um, particularly for MRCs, um, who are around this morning, and then he will launch into what on earth God is doing in Europe. Um, but let me pray for him and for us now. Father heaven, we do thank and praise you for... Um, the freedom with which we can meet today um, as believers without much fear um, with relative safety and we are mindful of brothers and sisters around the world for the that is not the case and so would we please um, make the most of the opportunity that you are providing for us we thank you for Jim thank you for his love for you thank you for his love for the gospel thank you for his love for, for Spain, for Europe and I thank you for all that you are doing in and through him pray as we leave this place we would have um, a greater trust in you, a greater trust in the power of the gospel, uh, an ability to see through the eyes of faith and what you are doing at the moment um, in Europe and beyond. I pray Father that if you are prompting or nudging individuals here, or perhaps those who are around this morning, to, to consider some kind of longer term um, ministry somewhere and you would um, you would speak to us clearly because we often find it hard to hear mm-hmm. so please be at work this evening we pray in your son's name Amen, Amen. Jim I'm going to picture it up and you're going to get six runs tell us tell us how you've arrived at this point here this evening ok uh, excellent. That's. I hope I don't, you know, <laughs> behave like the England oh, cricket team, you know, and uh, complete miss, miss it. Um, how did I get here? Well, that's a very good question um, because, quite frankly, I don't really believe it myself. I was sharing the other day, actually. Um, it's going through my mind partly because I think this question is a rhetorical question, and what, what is, what on earth is God doing in Europe? What on earth is God doing with, uh, with my life at the moment? And you find yourself, I think, sometimes looking back at those destiny moments that I talked about this morning. I left my house, I was 13 years old, I jumped on my bicycle, I turned left and cycled up the hill. And if I turned right, maybe I wouldn't be here today. Because... I turned left, I cycled up the hill and I stumbled across the Holiday Bible Club. And that was my first exposure to the Gospel. Now I'd been brought up in a 
nominal Christian family, the ones I was talking about this morning, ones who consider themselves Christian but that never darken the doors of the church. Um, but I can distinctly remember the first time that I heard these guys talking as if Jesus was alive. As if Jesus was alive. Because in my mind, yeah, Jesus lived and died and whatever, but I had no concept of him being a living person you could have a relationship with. And so, in a way, that moment set the course of my life and that brings me here today because from that point onwards, I got involved in Christian discipleship, uh, got more and more involved in, uh, after having committed my life to Christ, got in, uh, involved in things in the church, um, was uh, intrigued by the American missionaries who were the ones who were leading this, this church plant. So for me, my first experience of church was a church plant. So for me, normal church was church planting. I find, uh, you know, congregational church where you're just a participant or uh, in, in the room a little bit difficult. Anyway, I went off to university, um, was... Uh, um, and as, again, I was saying this morning about these destiny moments, uh, I didn't do very well in my A-levels, uh, didn't fail them, but didn't do anything like as well as I needed to to get into the two universities of my choice, and uh, ended up at UEA in Norwich, where I got a degree, and I met my wife, and I got a football team. So I got the, the full package, uh, Norwich City supporter, uh, uh, happily married to Christine, my wife, since 1989, and uh, um, uh, holder of what is generally considered to be the least useful degree you could possibly have if you want to be involved in Christian mission, which is a degree in chemistry. Okay, so uh, I studied chemistry, worked for Kodak for four years, and during that time the Lord really confirmed in our hearts a call to Europe. We went to All Nations College, uh, trained for two years, and then joined European Christian Mission in 1994. Uh, ECM was actually, the, was actually the people who suggested maybe Spain to us. Uh, at that point we weren't expecting Spain to be on the map, uh, so we went out to Spain, did cold turkey learning in Spanish and uh, brought up our three kids in the south of Spain. Um, <coughs> we lived there until 2008 when we came back for sabbatical. Again, God did something we weren't expecting at that point, which was that we would not go straight back to Spain, but we would stay here. And we were here for eight years, based in Gloucester, where I became a lecturer at Redford College and got involved in mission research about Europe and much more in mission leadership in ECM. So today I mix my roles between mission leadership with ECM and uh, teaching at Redcliffe in the summer school. And that's how I got to know Richard and Catherine, uh, who I had as students. Um, so it's a, a, a miracle that I'm here today uh, <laughs> after that as well. Um, is that sort of what you were after with that? Sort of a bit of an overview of, uh, of, of me. But um, what is God doing in Europe today was the, the title I put to this. Now I should say at the outset that when I'm talking about Europe, I'm not talking about the EU or the Eurozone. 
Okay? I'm talking about the countries that share the happy uh, <laughs> circumstance of living in the western half, western part of the Eurasian landmass and share a common history that means that we fought wars against each other quite a lot through history uh, and therefore uh, have a common, his- a common political and uh, economic and uh, social history. From the perspective of Christian mission, the countries of Europe have a lot more to do with each other than, for example, the UK and the US. Um, we share a language, but we, as sometimes is said, we're two countries um, divided by a common language. Um, we share a lot of things in the US, but we share a lot more and deeper things with other countries in Europe than is often given credit for. But when you look at Britain and when you look at Europe through, the Christ, through Christian eyes, it's easy to despair at the reality. There are church buildings everywhere, but many of their congregations are ageing or dwindling. Christian values appear to be under attack, left, right and centre. Christian voice in the public square is muted by those who suggest that all public debate should be uh, free from religious interference. We open our newspapers and the issues can so easily overwhelm us. Brexit, migration, populist nationalism, transgender politics and so on and so on. What on earth is God doing? Well, as I was preparing for this evening, I was reminded of a verse in the Old Testament, specifically the book of 1 Chronicles, and it's just a little phrase even within uh, this verse, 1 Chronicles 12.32. It speaks of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times and who knew what Israel should do. Just a bit of biblical context, first of all. King Saul had recently taken his life. David had been proclaimed king over all of Israel. And 1 Chronicles 12 lists all of those who fought with David in the crucial battles of his day, including the victory uh, in Jerusalem, which would see Jerusalem become the city of David. Among those warriors were the sons of Issachar, who were clearly known as those who understood the times, understood what was going on, and who knew what Israel should do. It's said that there is a Chinese curse, it may be apocryphal, which says, may you live in interesting times. Have you heard that one? Well, in Britain and Europe right now, it's certainly an interesting time. But is it a curse? Or should we see the current situation in our country and across the whole continent of Europe as a tremendous opportunity for the church and for the gospel. The question I chose as a title for this evening can be understood as an exclamation of frustration. What on earth is God doing? But it can also be understood as a call to discernment. What on earth is God doing? I want to challenge you to be like the sons of Issachar, to call upon God to give us discernment and understanding of the times in which we're living, not only on a big scale across Europe, but right here in East Oxford as well. What is God doing here? What what is happening in, in, in the community around us, 
that we can listen to so that we understand the times and know what we should do. Now I'm going to give you a brief overview, and it's very brief and very summarised, of what's happening around Europe at the moment. Out there, as it were. Then I'm going to highlight some of the things that I think God is doing in the midst of all of that. And then to conclude, I'll bring us back to Scripture and to the perspective that I think we need to have that helps us to make sense of all of this, both at a macro scale but also personally. So, here we go. Hold on to your seats. This is very quick. All right? Um, What's going on in Europe? I'm going to review the contemporary European situation through five lenses. Politics, economics, society, the environment and spirituality. Now, if any of you are specialists in these areas, I beg your forgiveness already uh, for simplifying okay, uh, things down to such uh, a few words. But um, uh, the good thing about speaking to Christian audiences, you have to expect I'm going to forgive you anyway. So Politics. Well, the political context in Europe has, tra- has changed radically over the last ten years. Back in 2008, the European project was full steam ahead. The Lisbon Treaty had just been signed, eight Central and Eastern European states had recently joined the club, and the talks to include Croatia were very well advanced. The answer to almost every challenge that member states faced was more Europe, more financial and political integration, further enlargement to the East, how things have changed. Nationalism has returned across Europe. Populist movements can be found almost wherever you look. I've lost... Now that's a bit frustrating. I did have a... It's gone. Obviously, accidentally deleted it. Never mind. Um, Populist movements can be found almost everywhere across Europe. Not only in uh, countries that maybe traditionally had had been thought of as having that type of nationalist... uh, Ideas, but many places calling for greater independence, regional autonomy, or full independence like Catalonia. Even European heartlands like France and Germany now have very strong uh, right-wing nationalist movements that are getting stronger and stronger. I just heard another report today about the next elections in, um, in France and the prospects of the National Front getting even more uh, prominence. And then, of course, we have Russia, the occupation of the southeast of the Ukraine, cyber attacks associated with the Brexit vote and the US election, nerve gas incident in Salisbury, and increased tensions along the borders of the Baltic countries. All signs that Russia sees an opportunity to destabilise the enemies, the perceived enemies in the West. And, of course, I haven't even mentioned the word yet, that's entered every single European language over the last few years. Brexit. Now, I'm sorry if you came along this evening hoping I was going to explain all the implications of Brexit for us. I'm going to disappoint you because I don't know. Um, And nobody really knows. But I can say, almost certainly, that we're going to be living with the consequences of Brexit, both politically, economically, and as I said this morning, missiologically, in other words, in respect to Christian mission, for generations to come. That's mine. <laughs> economics. Well, at least the economic situation is better, isn't it? We're not in recession like we were a few years ago. Uh, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe is over. The Greeks and the Cypriots are more or less okay now. We're all sorted. Well, not really. 
Um, this graph shows the amount of money that the European Central Bank has been pumping into the European economy to keep it going. It's a bit, think of it a bit like a blood transfusion. Um, the, the amounts that have, that have been put in have recently reduced, you can see that here on the right, but we're still talking about 30 billion euro every month just to keep the European economic blood pressure up. Now you might not um, think that's a lot, or you might think it's difficult to imagine, but that's effectively um, eight, 88 euro for every single man, woman and child across the EU. Now you might not know much about economics, but if you had to borrow 88 euro, 80 pounds, for each of the members of your family just to put food on the table, even you would know that something wasn't quite right. The truth is that we are continuing to behave like these guys, kidding ourselves that we can carry on financing our way out of the crisis. Everything's fine, just lay back and keep buying stuff, even if you don't need it. In fact, buy more stuff, then we'll get out of our problems. In the real world, of course, Unemployment in many countries is still very high, particularly youth unemployment in Greece and in Spain. Society. Well, in respect to the social context of Europe, three issues come to the fore. And the first of these, of course, is migration. The so-called European migrant crisis of 2015-16 saw more than 1.5 million refugees, principally from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, arrive, mainly by land and sea, into South Eastern Europe. The route through Greece has effectively been cut off um, thanks to a one-in and one-out deal with Turkey, but that's just pushed many of the migrants further west. 120,000 made the treacherous journey from Libya to Italy last year and another 20,000 to Spain. From spring to autumn, hardly a day goes by without some Padera, as they call it in Spain, a small boat arriving on the Spanish beaches. Um, it's unbelievable, and you've probably seen images of that. People literally, they're lying on the beach in their bathing costume while people are coming uh, up the beach from a, a shipwrecked boat. Tremendous. The second uh, great challenge in respect to um, uh, the society is this our lack of enthusiasm for these. <coughs> Something's gone wrong here. This is why I should have checked this has been copied the right way around. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Never mind. It was going to be a picture of something that I've already seen today. Babies. Okay. Birth rates across Europe are at incredibly low levels. Right across the EU, every single country has a birth rate below replacement level. And in some cases, way below. In the case of Germany, they've had a birth rate of 1.4 for pretty much the last 20 years. That means that the next generation is basically... The, uh, the oldest generation there's ever been and that situation is replicated across Europe pretty much everywhere to, to a greater or lesser extent. One of the big challenges for our country and for our continent in Europe is going to be that. 
And that is one of the big factors that has, that has drawn many of the migrants to, to, to Europe. Because in, frankly, without them, there would, be, there would not be people in order to work uh, in, in the fields or in the factories. The next area that I really wanted to, to look at is the environment. And it's well known that climate change is, make, is having an impact as well on European society. 16 of the 17 warmest years on record have been since the turn of the millennium. The increase in the number of extreme weather events has been noted uh, by many, in particular more severe flooding. Um, and I don't know whether any of you saw the, the, uh, the images from uh, Italy of the storms there in the north of Italy that devastated forests. And uh, in France and Spain and Italy over the last few weeks, devastating floods that have killed many. That's a picture of one of those uh, northern forests where apparently Stradivarius violin wood comes from. So what's God doing in the midst of all of that? Well, this morning you, know, you will know I looked at the book of Esther, which in many ways is a metaphor for our current situation. It seems like God is nowhere to be seen, that the fear of God and the blessing that seem to be with the European peoples for, since their adoption of Christianity has left us. Well, I want to challenge that assumption this evening. God has not given up on Europe. He's doing amazing things. And uh, I tempted your... I'm not tempted you. I said this morning, I, my Spanish is going to bleed through. That is a classic example of that. I'm sorry, I didn't tempt you. I suggested that I might be revealing some of the things that God is doing in Europe this evening. And I'm going to divide it into three sections. Okay? The first of these is that I think God is purifying the church through pruning. Where we live in Spain, we're surrounded by olive groves, surrounded by vineyards, and every autumn, once the crop has been harvested, the olive trees and the vines are pruned right back. They seem almost dead. I'm going to show a photograph later on that's going to show those in the foreground. Um, through the winter months, they almost seem dead, but then suddenly, in the spring, they burst into life. The history of the church in Europe is not one of steady growth. It's a period of explosive growth followed by decline. The Protestant Reformation that began 501 years ago radically changed European societies as the churches returned to God's word. Sadly, liberal theology has devastated many so-called Protestant <laughs> countries. Last year I visited Gotland, which is where this picture was taken. It's a Swedish island in the middle of the Baltic Sea, covered by some of the most beautiful, amazing medieval churches, which are beautifully maintained, each of which, each of which has a full-time pastor, paid for by the state, even though no one worships there. There's no Sunday service because they have no regular congregation. He's just there to bury people and to keep the building looking nice. Now part of the problem is that cultural, is the cultural Christianity that you can find in many places around Europe. As I mentioned this morning, a very high percentage of Europeans still identify as Christians, even though 
they have no connection with the church. As Jesus himself put it in John 15, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Nominal Christianity, those who call themselves Christians, but that is all it is, is a huge challenge for the church today. Faced with the vines that are withering and dying, we need to do whatever we can to reach out to those who continue to embrace the Christian identity but are missing from our churches. I don't know how many people here in East Oxford would fall into that category. Probably a very significant proportion would consider themselves Christians. Is there anything you can do to reach those people? Now there's Back to Church Sunday, right? They have that thing now, Back to Church Sunday. But do we just depend on one Sunday a year to, to do that? Is there any way of engaging those people? Earlier this year I was privileged to be part of a consultation by the Lausanne movement looking specifically at this issue of um, nominalism. And it's a real challenge across Europe. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Catholic nominalism or Orthodox nominalism or Protestant nominalism or even... Is it possible that there are nominal Christians in evangelical churches? It's not only possible, it's a reality. So discipleship is absolutely critical and thinking about how we can challenge people to, with the claims of Christ, reminding them of what it really means to be a Christian is absolutely vital. That's the first thing that I think God is doing. But the second is that he's changing the face of the church through migration. Uncontrolled migration is a problem from whatever angle you look at it. The migrants themselves are exposed often to exploitation and racism. The settled population are forced to cope with changes to their locality that nobody prepared them for or asked their opinion of. And in the countries of origin, the loss of the most talented, highly trained, dynamic people in the workforce suppresses those economies and often leaves a generation of children being brought up by their grandparents or by other family members. Now I can't do such a, a complex issue, issue like migration justice in just one paragraph. So I'm going to leave my general comments about migration there, about uncontrolled migration. And I want to focus in on how God, despite it all, and whatever the negative aspects that there might be, how God is using migration to transform the churches of Europe. Now the conflation of migrants with Islam in the popular press has masked one of the most incredible developments in Christian mission over the past generation, the changing face of the church. Because a very, very significant proportion of the migrants who come to Europe are Christians. Attendance at mass in the UK has gone through the roof since the Polish migrants arrived. And putting that to one side, in the proliferation of migrant churches in towns and cities across Europe, that's where the real impact is to be found. I mentioned again this morning about the Redeemed Christian Church of God, planting 800 plus churches in the UK just in the last 30 years. That's one church. Nigerian, Chinese, Filipino, Colombian churches are present in almost every major city across Europe. 
And of course that's the result of the growth in the global church, in the global south. One statistic to put this into context, there are more Christians gathered on a given Sunday in China than there are in all of the churches in Europe put together. That's the the reality of, of what we're talking about. Is it any wonder that we see Chinese churches sprouting up all over, all over Europe? At this moment of weakness of European churches, when we're being pruned, God has brought in reinforcements from every corner of the globe. And of course, he's brought also many people from previously closed countries that come here to study and to work and to live next door to us. What an opportunity there is to reach them as well. Now, as I said a moment ago, uncontrolled migration poses lots of problems, but the church also there has an opportunity to be part of the solution. For we are the one community that has in its founding documents a commitment to racial, economic and gender equality. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We need to demonstrate the truth of that verse in our communities and help the migrant churches to work with us to reach this generation of lost Europeans. That's a huge challenge. Many of the migrant church leaders need somebody to reach out to them before they will know how to engage with the churches here. So, I really encourage you to take the initiative in that and think about how you can maybe be part of the, the, the conversation in that regard in helping these migrant church leaders to engage with the communities here in East Oxford. Thirdly, revitalising the church through church planting. The last reality of what God is doing in Europe I want to bring to your attention is this incredible resurgence there has been in church planting in Europe. But didn't I just say that the church was being pruned? That it was shrinking? Well, yes, it's shrinking and it's growing. Often right next door to a church that is closing down is another one that is opening up. A young, vibrant church that looks a bit different to what was there before. And it needs to look different because that's what's needed to reach this generation of Europeans. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Maybe that the Maudlin Road Church has its time. I'm not calling an age, calling an end to the church here, Dan. But there may well come a time when a different sort of church is necessary. If you're not able to adapt to that new reality, a, 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 new, a new church may be necessary. But across Europe, whole church planting movements have come out of almost out of nowhere. I'm just going to rattle off a few of their names. Multiplication Network, City to City, Acts 29, M4, Catalyst Network, Fresh Expressions, Mosaic, I could go on. All often indigenous church planting movements that have come to the surface and are having a huge impact across Europe. Working across denominations to see new congregations of Jesus followers established. Whole denominations like the Baptists in the UK or the Assemblies of God in Spain have committed themselves to church planting as a key part of their strategy for growth. And national church planting networks like the one I mentioned in France this morning 
or La Plata in Spain, have accelerated church planting to the degree that now, as I said this morning, every ten days a church is being planted in France, every five days a new church is being planted in Spain. In February this year, I was privileged in Berlin, this is the meeting that I was in in February, in a gathering of 180 church planters from 28 different European countries who are trying to establish international and inter- sorry, interdenominational church planting platforms, national platforms for church planting with a national vision. Most of the people who are, op- who are involved in local church plants are people just like you and me. Europe is not a graveyard for Christian mission. It's more like a laboratory for experimenting in the new reality that we find ourselves in. We're experimenting what it's going to be like to plant the churches of tomorrow. Churches that can thrive in the hostile soil of Europe and can help the global church to thrive in the secular age in which we live. Because what we are experiencing now is only just around the corner in many other parts of the world. So that's very quick whiz through some of what I think is happening in our context and what God is doing. So the question is then, how do we respond to that? Well, the men of Issachar didn't only understand the times, they also knew what Israel should do. What should we be doing in consequence to this? Well, the story of Jesus and the Bible that presents it has shaped European history in countless ways. Its legal system, its economic system, literature, concepts of time, education and the family. In short, the European worldview was shaped by the Christian story. And though most Europeans today choose to ignore it, Jesus Christ is still the Lord of history and he's still the King of Kings on his throne and the Lord of the world and the Lord of Europe. I'm sure many of you know that last week saw the death of Eugene Peterson, the author and Bible translator. His message translation isn't a Bible for preaching from, but its idiomatic style does make the Bible come alive as we read it. Um, And I wanted to just read one passage this evening from uh, his translation. It's from Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. That's why, when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master, Jesus, and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do more than thank. I ask, ask the God of our Master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear, so that you can see exactly what it is he's calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. 
He is in charge of it all and has the final word on everything. At the centre of this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. If I can paraphrase a paraphrase, the church, you see, is not peripheral to Europe. Europe is peripheral to the church. Now whether the church continues to be pruned back in our generation or explodes into dynamic multiplication and cultural transformation, we know that Jesus Christ is in charge of it all and has the final word on everything. Some years ago, the missionary statesman Leslie Newbegin was interviewed on the radio. The journalist asked Newbegin, "Uh, Bishop Newbegin, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the church? He paused for a moment and then responded, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Do you get that? That is our controlling narrative. That is our story. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's not about whether the church appears to be growing or appears to be shrinking. God invites us into his story. And that story shapes our lives, not the other way around. We're not the centre. He is. And that's how we need to live. Whatever our season, whatever our station in life, to have that as our worldview, that Christ is on the throne, that he is sovereign, he is in control, and so we can relax, even if there's chaos in Europe, even if Brexit goes pear-shaped, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Now I want to to finish with a little story. It's a story about a young Catholic priest from the town where we live. This is where we live. Those are those vines that look like they're dead but they've just been pruned right the way back to to the stump. And that's Aguilar de la Frontera in Spain where I left from yesterday morning and I'll return to tomorrow morning. It's a small town of 14,000 people about an hour north of Malaga. If any of you have been to the Costa del Sol, an hour north of there. (coughs) He was the son of one of the leading families in the town where my wife and I live. And in 1836, he, uh, as I mentioned, a Catholic priest, and in fact the rector of the local Catholic seminary, declared himself to be a Protestant. Back then, that was a thing that you did with great fear and trembling. In fact, so much so, he fled for fear of his life. And he went to Gibraltar, and then on to Liverpool. And whilst he was in Liverpool, he began to teach uh, Spanish in a local school, and was then headhunted to become the very first teacher of Spanish at Oxford University. The first teacher of Spanish in Oxford came from my town. (laughs) Now, that's not just me going, the amazing thing about Lorenzo Senna's life is that that he was such a gifted linguist, particularly with biblical languages, 
that the Bible societies back in the middle of the 19th century asked him, whilst he was in Oxford, to revise the old Spanish translation of the scriptures. He dedicated six years of his life to that whilst he was working here at the Taylorian. And at the end of those six years, his uh, 1862 translation uh, became the standard Bible for Spanish-speaking agencies. They adopted his text, sent it out in huge quantities across Latin America and all the Spanish-speaking world. His translation became the, the standard. In fact, it's the last one. If you look at any Reina Valera Bible, it's still the Bible that most Spanish-speaking people use today. You'll see the 1862 translation mentioned in the, the, on the front page. He was buried, completely forgotten by his family and the town where he was born, in Jericho graveyard. St. Sepulchre's graveyard in Jericho is where you'll find his gravestone today. And he was forgotten until a few years ago we started a campaign around his life to have a street named after him. So today in our town there is a, a Lorenzo Lucena street. Okay? And not only that, but his family, who bear the same surname, now know who he is. But he went to the grave without ever realising the tremendous impact that his work had had. And that was the case for many of the 19th century missionaries. I doubt very much that Hudson Taylor ever imagined that the Chinese churches would one day potentially be the hope for his home country and for the rest of Europe 150 years later. And that is no less true for you and for me. We live in an age of instant results. But Rome wasn't built in a day and the Kingdom of God wasn't either. We need to remember Paul's words to the church in Corinth. One might plant the seed, another water it, but it's God who makes it grow. The ground we're tilling here in Europe is hard. We may not ever see the results of our labours, but the influence of our lives and our hard labour is making a difference. God is faithful. Amen? Amen. And today, 180 years later, 180 years after Lorenzo Lucena left the town, believers read the Bible that he helped to translate and gather together to worship our faithful God. What on earth is God doing? Well, I think we can discern something of that. Like the sons of Issachar, we can assess the times in which we're living, see something of the way that God is moving in our time. But more than anything else, we need to remember that God invites us into his story, not the other way around. And we know how this story ends. As we remember the end of the Great War a hundred years ago, as we face the unknown implications of Brexit, and as we confront the personal situations that each of us might be facing, we do so in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is sovereign. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule and not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all and has the final word on Europe, on Brexit, 
on everything.